Age to Practice, applying educational reading in the classroom. Join in the conversation using hashtag PagePracticePodcast. Page to Practice is a podcast focusing on the application of education research in the classroom. Each episode features a conversation with a different guest, teachers, authors and others interested in education, talking about what the phrase from page to practice means to them and the importance of applying evidence to classroom practice. Hi, welcome to Series 5, Episode 11. Today I'm sharing with you my chat with Bradley Bush of Inner Drive. After having them mentioned in the CPD Library Round a few times, it was great to get to talk to him about the books The Science of Learning and Teaching and Learning Illuminated. We chatted about the different ways teachers can engage with evidence-informed practice and the work Inner Drive does to support this. I hope you enjoy. Okay, hi. So today I am here with Bradley and rather than introduce you, I would like you to do it yourself, please. Who are you? <laughs> Hello. Uh, well, thanks for having me on. Uh, where to begin? My name's Bradley. Uh, I'm a psychologist at Inner Drive. Uh, we work mainly with schools around helping them use cognitive science research to inform their practice. Uh, we also do a bit in sport, working with a few Premier League players. Um, and a bit in the business world as well. That's great because you bring something quite different to the the mostly teachers that I've spoken to so far. So what does the phrase from page to practice mean to you? Yeah, that was a good question. I spent most of the day milling milling over this. Uh, I guess the best I can kind of come up with really is I think research is there to inform our practice um, and inform our judgment, but it should never replace it. And what you see written on the words on a page from a research paper is really valuable, but the context is obviously going to be different. And so I like the idea that teachers can use research, can wrestle with it, but it's actually the converting of it into what does this mean for me in my practice? I think that's the value of research. I think that's quite nicely summed up, I think, in the sentiment of from page to practice. You're listening to From Page to Practice. Join the conversation on Twitter using hashtag PagePracticePodcast. Um, before we talk about the reason I asked you to come today, because I've got this lovely copy of Teaching and Learning Illuminated sat here, um, could you tell us a bit about Inner Drive and the, uh, the books you've previously published? I've got the Science of Learning sat here next to me as well. So <laughs> Amazing. Um, yeah, so we, we started off um, mainly working with students to see can we help students improve study skills and revision and motivation and just general life habits that would help them do better at school and almost by well by request we had teachers go do you do a teacher equivalent uh and what we didn't want to do is do the same stuff that we do with the students with the teachers we wanted to go a bit deeper into some of the research um and so over the years we now work with think about 400 schools um, in total. Uh, We either go in in person uh, and deliver staff training. Uh, We also have our online uh, Teacher CPD Academy, which is where schools and colleges can sign up to get self-access modules. Uh, We have a whole bunch of interviews with researchers because I think teachers are so interested in research, but so 
time poor in terms of the demands on them that anything we can do that is flexible that's bite-sized that's manageable and interesting in research that's really what that platform is involved in and so yeah we know we kind of see ourselves as google translate for research so Ooh, I like a, that. yeah well we so we, we don't do research ourselves um but we know that often research is either behind paywalls or it's written for other researchers and it doesn't always filter down as effectively as i think it should to those who benefit from the most i.e teachers so we have our teacher cpd academy for that we've written books uh trying to in, in, in that in that theory in that philosophy uh so we got we started with the science of learning which is was really popular and i think it was popular because it just it wasn't deep critiques of the research i think other people are better placed for that but it kind of gives the headline findings mm-hmm. and almost acts as a, like a gateway drug where you can then know where to begin <laughs> and, and where the next step is in terms of what you want to read so i think research can be really daunting at times if you don't know where to begin Absolutely. And I've had a few people, I've, I've had a few people in this, um, as you know, the round are coming up at the end of this podcast about a CPD library. And, you know, whilst Craig Burton is reigning up there with the most mentions, and then there's Kate Jones, your science of learning book has come up a good few times. So I know teachers find it, you know, a really good way of, uh, of being to able to engage. I mean, that is, it's just so lovely to hear because you write stuff and you never know you always hope it's going to do good in the world, but once you release it, it's kind of just out there in the world. And Absolutely. I mean, even just even just to be mentioned in the same breath as as those sort of people uh, who I think have done so much for CPD. Um, yeah, it's just nice to know. Hopefully, that ha- has an impact. Yeah. So, what what kind of what do you hope teachers can get out of engaging with this kind of thing before we move on to your more recent work? Yeah. Well, I mean, I just hope. I used to think the value was. You read the research and you'd find out about these findings and that, that's really valuable to know what the kind of findings are. And I've kind of softened a bit over the years. Now I kind of think actually the most powerful part of reading research and doing CPD and reading our books and all that kind of stuff is the conversations that happen afterwards. I just like that the idea that it starts professional dialogue. So I always kind of say like you don't have to adopt what the research findings are wholesale, but if it leads to a conversation that you have with your colleagues about why do we do things the way we do it and at least you kind of have a rationale for it and it's been considered uh that i think is the value because then you're not just doing stuff by default essentially and so that's what i hope teaching engages they don't necessarily find solutions but they find broadly speaking guidelines and principles that they can then work within under that umbrella but to make it their own so they still have that autonomy Mm, and then like I know we're talking about page to practice but there's that stage in the middle isn't there like you're saying with the conversations and you've had some involvement with some big events like festive education in the past right haven't you yeah I know so we've been lucky enough so festive education we now uh, in a drive create the cognitive science strand um, which is amazing because it allows us hopefully to platform a whole broad church of education um Mm-hmm. folks so we have researchers we have teachers uh, we have people who go in and train teachers so it's really interesting to see how these different people have used cognitive science um we've also been really lucky enough um i think along with festival education i think the work that research ed do is just phenomenal uh and i'd always encourage people to go to those things. i think pound for pound must be the most valuable cpd that exists um because it just makes everything so accessible. And I guess what we do under our own brother, we have the Teaching and Learning Summit, um, which is where we try and get these leading figures to 
share their very latest thoughts and ideas. And that's why I think the profession is just so rich at the moment in terms of podcasts like your own and events like our summit and research ed and festival education, just I've seen so much discussion around what does this stuff mean for us on a day-to-day basis. And I think the profession has so many challenges at the moment. One of the best things to, at the moment that to come out of it is people sharing their ideas on, on evidence-informed practice. Uh, completely. And I think what things what like the Festival of Education and the things you put together do is help teachers make sense of where on earth to look. Because there's, like you've said, this wealth of stuff out there right now. And it can be really intimidating, can't it, to, to, to bring that down and, and know what to engage with. So I don't can't even begin to think how you've brought together the things you have. But I mean, but that, that, I mean if you were going to design a system that is the worst for getting evidence available to people. Like you'd make it behind paywalls, which most research is. You'd make it in really psych-heavy jargon because it's written for other researchers, not educators. There'd be a wealth of it so you don't know where to start. And that's exactly kind of the problem we're facing. Uh, But yet there's been this explosion of people blogging about research and researchers now trying to make themselves more available. And hopefully we can be a bit of a platform or a bit of a bridge for those sort of things to happen. So talking of, that's a really good segue actually, bridges for these things to happen, where has teaching and learning illuminated come from? Because I have to say, when it came through my door, it it took me by surprise because I didn't know what it was going to look like. And for anybody listening who hasn't got a copy or hasn't seen it yet, it's an A4 book. It's hardback. It's full of colour. I'll let you talk about it, but I love it. No, no, you you, you did a better sales job than I ever could. I mean, so I guess there's a couple of things. Uh, first of all, we always wanted to make a coffee table book. Um, you know, so that just felt a bit different. Uh, and so we wanted it bigger and colourful. And our publishers at Routledge, I have to say, have just been amazing in terms of letting us have colour. We even have like a shiny spot gloss over the light bulb on the front cover so it catches the light. And we wanted it to feel like art, we want it to feel beautiful because for us, generally, teaching and learning might be the most important thing. Maybe you can talk about safeguarding behaviour as well, but like it's definitely up there with like some of those important things schools schools should be doing. And we think this topic is so important, but yet sometimes it doesn't get necessarily the love it deserves. So we wanted something that makes you want to read it because if the research is the ability to solve complex issues that we face, we wanted the quality of the material to, to reflect that um so yeah we wanted it to be big we wanted it to be colorful we wanted it to be hardback um and we also wanted something that people could dip in and out of so you can read one or two pages at a time and how we really came to it was we saw our last book the science of learning as google translate for research we put research in plain english if science of learning was google translate we kind of see teaching learning illuminated as google images uh in terms of we think The danger with any graphic is you can oversimplify, but hopefully it can start a conversation. And we like the idea of this two-page spread of, you know, graphics and visuals that can reflect, you know, a picture's worth a thousand words, but then you also have the accompanying text that can get into a bit more of the nuance behind it. And I think it's just the age we live in that people like sharing visual content. And so we try to really kind of tap into that, really. I think the dipping in and out thing is really important. It's something that's come up in so many of these conversations I've had so far that teachers' time, as you've said, is the teachers' time poor. So to be able to dip in and go, this is something I'm interested in, 
oh, just absorb this double page today is is just so useful and ideal, really. So much. Like, so I had a teacher yesterday um, tell me that um, how how they were using Teaching Learning Illuminated is they say they literally give 15 minutes of a segment in their CPD, in their internal staff meetings. So 15 minutes, five minutes to look at the graphic and read the company text, five minutes to uh, reflect on how this does or doesn't chime with your current practice, and five minutes to reflect on that with the person next to you. And it's just this quick 15 minutes. You know, we're not giving the answers, because I don't know if there are answers in education, really, but we're giving kind of conversation points and starters, and you, people can critique the models or graphics, and they can go, yes, like this is exactly what I think it should be like. But again, it just starts that professional dialogue in a really quick and succinct way, hopefully. Now that's such a great model to share because there's so many schools that are trying to work on how can they improve their CPD provision? What can they do that's more relevant to, to everybody? I think that's a really good example of being able to do it in a, in a shorter frame of time. But actually, I also think you could take things that much deeper, couldn't you? And that's kind of the beauty of it, that you could go, I'm going to look at this section today and we can take a much longer discussion about it. Completely. So to give you one example, one of the um, graphics um, was a two by two matrix, a table that actually appears in a research study on resilience. And it talks about to develop a resilient environment, you want both high challenge and high support. And it talks about what happens if you don't have those sort of things. Uh, I have spent the best part of half a day with some schools just talking about that one graphic alone. Like, what does this mean for high challenge and high support for students who have different needs? What does this mean for, you're not really meant to talk about now, but essentially what was differentiation? Um, what does this mean for our most vulnerable students? What does it mean for our feedback? And so you can go off on millions of different tangents on quite deep nuance, or you can just do a 15-minute headline overview, and hopefully that's it offers that range. Uh, I should point out, my, my co-author would kill me if I didn't mention it, one of the best things we love about our publisher, Routledge, is they agreed to let us put, I think, about 50% of it, uh, of the graphics online for free because we wanted teachers to be able to download it and to be able to use it internally how they see fit. Um, so hopefully, um, through our website, innerdrive.co.uk, a lot of the materials are available for free to hopefully just get, get the word out there. And that's great. That's another thing that teachers and schools so desperately need at the moment, isn't it? It's, you know... We don't always have the funds to engage with things in the way we'd like to and the, dedicate the time as well. So uh, having those resources available to them is really important. Well, I was going to say, yeah, I, was just, I hope so, because, you know, I don't believe world-class CPD should only be for those privileged few who can absolutely be able to afford it. And of course, you're going to get a range of services but there should be something that people on a shoestring should still be able to access evidence-informed practice and research and hopefully by having that as a almost as a backup option on our site it, it, it provides that do you think there's been something kind of over the last few years that's caused this kind of i was gonna say resurgence but maybe that's not the right word but of research informed practice is that something that were you working on this kind of thing before and it's happened during this time or the evidence-informed practice things kind of happened and you've you've joined the space later yeah probably a bit of both I mean I think the first thing that's really kick-started because I talked to teachers in other countries so take America as an example 
miles behind the UK in terms of adopting evidence-informed approaches, which is ironic because a lot of the research comes from researchers in America. But like, so you, yeah. could, you, you could go to a school in America, I've asked a few different American teachers this and go, you know, put your hands up if you've heard of retrieval practice. And they've told me they've estimated less than 1% would put their hands up. Whereas in the UK, you ask that question, I think you get a very different answer. So the main reason I think of this drive has been, it's come from schools and teachers themselves. Like there's clearly been a say, and we saw this with how amazing events like Research Ed and Festival Education have grown and started because there was a demand from it from those who needed it the most. So I think it's been a very authentic grass movement um, approach. And of course, for all their criticisms, the Ofsted framework with regards to cognitive science, that definitely helped progress things along because, again, a lot of other countries don't even mention stuff like cognitive science in if they have an equivalent of, of Ofsted. So I think those things have happened. In terms of our work, you know, we principally started in football, uh, working with, I'd say, Premier League footballers and clubs, and we dabbled a bit in education. But, you know, if 10 years ago, I, we weren't using words like self-regulation and metacognition in education. The terminology at the time would have been around performance under pressure or dealing with stress. Uh, so clearly it's been because there's been a need from the education community for this sort of stuff. Um, and I think we're lucky enough that we can play a unique role in the sense of, you know, I taught in a college for a number of years, um, but, you know, that was a good number of years ago and that was only part-time as well. So we kind of come at it as approach from this it's not like we're saying this is what we've done in the classroom, so you should do the same. We're just kind of now saying, here's what the research says, over to you to kind of reflect on what it does and doesn't say. And I think I think that's been hopefully well received. Well, I think that's an important perspective because sometimes, you know, it's it's always really important to hear people who are in the classroom doing it, but also to hear from people from different perspectives and what they do and what they know and what they can bring, I think is something that sometimes teachers can be reluctant to do. And it's, I think it's important to see the relevance of that. So I'll, I'll give you a great example of that. Um, I was doing a session earlier with um, a teacher, um, a brilliant author. I don't know if she's been reported, Jade Pierce. Um, author oh, of I've whatever. spoken to Jane in the past, yeah. So I, I think Jane's phenomenal. Uh, so, and her book, What Every Teacher Needs to Know, I think is just brilliant. But we were talking about interleaving. And so as a psychologist, I can explain what the research says on interleaving. And hopefully I can explain it in a really clear and succinct manner. But then she gave an example of how she used to interleave um, exchange rates with interest rates within her business studies classroom. And like, I can't ever give that example um, because I haven't ever taught business studies. And it would be a mistake for me to try and suggest what a business studies teacher should do as an example. Uh, and so there's clearly a role for some to be able to go, here's the evidence in an accessible way. And clearly there's a role for others to be able to go, and here's X, Y, and Z way to do it. And hopefully by having that combination out there in the world, people can work out what's appropriate for them. Because I always hate the idea of going to a school and saying, this is how you should start your lessons because a, I think it looks different in different subjects uh, and B it looks different for different, even within the same subject, different cohorts and different school contexts will make a massive difference. But what we can do is go for retrieval to be effective. The general suggestion is it needs to be difficult, but successful. You need to give enough of a wait time. There's certain active ingredients and hopefully teachers can then run with that themselves to figure out what that looks like for their subject. 
I think it's all about knowing where to tap on the right knowledge and expertise, isn't it? And where you've got the expertise and where you go, actually, you know what, you're the person doing this. You tell me how that works for you and I'll work with you on how we're going to make that work best. Oh, completely. So I'll give you an example. At the Education Festival this year at our Cognitive Science Strand, we've got um, a educator, her name's Hayley Hughes. Uh, part of her talk, she's going to be talking about how mentors can use cognitive science. Mm-hmm. Now, I've never been a mentor, so I have no idea. I can talk about cognitive science, but like, it's fascinating to be able to hear her perspective. And yet another teacher who's a secondary school teacher, uh, a guy called Mike Hobis, he's talking about how the psychology of attention and students in his class, how he tries to limit, you know, digital distractions, as an example, or multitasking. And it's amazing how you can have these two different, very different presentations, but both grounded in research because they've tailored it to their context, which I just think is brilliant. And again, speaks to the, you know, everything that's on offer now to teachers to be able to dip in and out of as they please and to really engage with that kind of thing as well. Oh, completely. And as I said earlier, there are some big challenges in education. You can't get away from it. But the sharing of ideas and being evidence informed is, I I think it's gold dust. I think it's amazing at the moment. Yeah, I don't think, I don't think they, well, obviously I'm speaking from the inside and I don't know, but I don't think there can be many professions that share in quite the same way. Yeah, I mean, that's the best part about working in education is that sharing. So before we move on to the, the final round, I'm actually quite fascinated. I'd like to hear about, and I think a lot of the listeners would like to hear about, kind of the work you've done in sport as well and how you feel that then has linked into to what you do in the education space. Yeah, sure. So, um, so as I say, we mainly worked in football. Uh, we've been lucky enough as well to work with um, Olympians and Paralympians who've gone to the last three games for Team GB, who've medalled at those games. Um, and we... I say mainly working football, focusing on individuals. Uh, and to start with, we were interested in helping them perform under pressure. So traditional areas, kind of akin to students taking exams. Can you manage? Can you manage your nerves? Can you focus on the right things? Can you deal with the setback in that moment? So you have a bad question one in your exams, or you have a bad first ten minutes in the football match. How do you recover? And so we still do a lot of that stuff, and we've been very lucky. Uh, you know both myself and the company have worked with players from Manchester City, Manchester United, um, Tottenham. And so being able to kind of really kind of see firsthand what makes these very, very elite athletes, like what makes them different and how do they think. What we've done more and more recently is we've shifted away from helping them perform under pressure because actually their clubs often do that quite well now. Um, Our big shift, I think, more is how do we help them become better learners? So to give football as as the main example, uh, football is very outcome biased. So if you win, everything is brilliant. People celebrate. And if you lose, everything's terrible and everyone commiserates. We kind of say it's kind of weddings or funerals every weekend. It's either the wedding and it's brilliant or it's commiseration and it's the funeral. And we found both, uh, like neither one of those is good platforms for learning. Because if you're overly celebrating or overly commiserating, you're probably not reflecting on what did I do well, what could I do better. So we don't necessarily use this terminology with them, but we're essentially trying to help them become metacognitive learners, getting them to reflect on what went well, um, getting them to reflect on who do I need to ask for for feedback? How do I, what feedback do I need? How do I engage with that feedback? A lot of it's what we want for our students. It's just a different context and their context is obviously elite football. Yeah, I just think that's really interesting and something that you know, teachers can can 
can almost discuss with students you know some of these things we're doing for learning actually is entirely relevant out in the the world of work and if that is what you want to go and do you know sports and all the rest of it there are you know some of the same things that we're trying to do to support your learning that would support you in that career and I think that's something students don't always recognize isn't it Oh, so much so. So when we go into, we, we do a lot of student workshops still. Uh, and we always have a few students who are quite sporty. Um, and some of them would tell us that, you know, it doesn't matter what they do in their exams because they want to be uh, an athlete. And what I always find interesting is having worked with these very elite athletes is the sort of mindset that they have towards learning is often the thing that really helps separate them. Like so at the elite level, everyone's talented, but the question is, like, how do you deal with criticism and feedback and setbacks? And that's the exact same skills I want to teach sixteen-year-olds, regardless of if they want to be athletes or not. Is that's that, that's just good life skills, and so helping them realise that actually it's not just about talent and it is about learning. Um, I think can be transformational for young people. And always good for them to hear it from somebody who's not their normal classroom teacher, because we all know there's there's certain things that they need to hear from someone who's out there in the real world because they think their teacher lives in the classroom. <laughs> Honestly, it, it used to make us embarrassed because sometimes we'd worried. We'd go, like, are we stating the obvious or repeating what their teachers told them? And a lot of the time the teachers told us they love it when it's the same message delivered from a different voice. Yes. Because every, yes. Then, often then the students will go, oh, like, miss or sir, like, that's what you were saying the other day. And I think sometimes the students feel their teachers say stuff because they have to say stuff as opposed to it actually being really valuable. And although I don't think this should be the case, the reality is having an external voice sometimes in sync with what the school is saying, for whatever reason, does carry some weight. And it can just be that extra final push that builds on all that previous work the school have done internally that can really help. No, oh, absolutely. It's the it's the uh, the day to day reality of working with teenagers, isn't it? I think. But um, I've been in a similar situation. I was um, in, in the school I was working before I before I moved on. Uh, a, an outside company came in, and they were doing this lovely session on retrieval practice and all sorts of other things. And I'm stood there thinking, "This is the stuff I have told you." And the kids are lapping it up. Oh yeah, funnily enough, funnily enough, someone else saying it helps. <laughs> I think there's two I think there's probably two things at play here is one you have the luxury as an external of you don't have that history in terms of like for example as a teacher you have to be the one who tells them off for running down the corridor uh whereas like you get the luxury of coming in fresh as the outsider so there is I guess like it's not a fair fight in that respect and the other thing I think is like we do 12 different workshops to students that we offer schools and I think about a similar number of CPDs and we kind of say if you had the luxury of only teaching 12 lessons over time you would have the time and the luxury to be able to refine it and tweak it and really kind of make whereas because it's really difficult for teachers to be subject experts and experts on everything else that's required within the school and so sometimes that's the luxury of an external is that's we've honed our craft on this one very specific area and that sometimes helps definitely so before we move on to this final section uh, is there one anything that you were hoping to talk about that we haven't discussed and two where can people find you contact you all of the rest of it well i have to ask so i've been nagging my co-author for years that we should be doing a podcast because 
every time I go on a podcast, it's sort of like you just get to share ideas. I, I'm pretty much convinced it helps the person doing the podcast as much as the person there because like it's, it's basically hundred percent luxury. 100%. Right. So I guess the question is, um, it must be I'm guessing a labour of love and take you hours and hours out of your life. So like, what made you decide to bring the podcast back? I guess is the really interesting question for me. So part of the bringing it back is because I've got the luxury of not being in the classroom anymore. Um, And I know a number of people listening already know it. I'm working for an exam board now as a subject advisor for languages. So I've got that time and I missed it. I I missed the engaging with all of the educational reading that I was doing before. So, and the way the podcast was set up before, people were sending me contributions and I was putting them all together. And that was laborious because I wasn't getting to have these lovely conversations. I was just having it sent to me. Um, so now, you know, I'm really grateful so many people have said yes to getting involved, but that's the, been the real value of it for me. The last kind of 10, 11, 12 conversations I've had where it's been 30, 45 minutes just flown by and really enjoyable because you just get to talk to someone about something you're passionate about. So I'd go back to them and say, let's do it because you'll enjoy it. <laughs> Amazing. Well, it's funny you say that about people saying yes to you and coming on the pod is I've always been one of the best things I think about education. I found this with teachers and researchers is the amount of people who say yes, if you ask them a question or a favor. So like I email researchers all the time to go like, can you send me your study? Can you give me a five minute interview just so I can pick your brains about the study or educators sharing resources? I think that's, you don't get that. I think in nearly any other profession, this, just this openness to be able to support and share and, yeah, so it's interesting that you've had a similar experience with people contributing for the, yeah. for the pod. And with this this new format, I have asked people to sign up. Um, but they're, you know, every so often I've said, oh, you know, I think you'd be really good to come on. And I think people need that boost sometimes to go, oh, you want, you want me? So it's, it's a mix, isn't it, of people who are willing to put themselves forward and people that you go, no, I want that person. And I don't think they'll either know we exist or think that they're good enough to do it so making sure you approach them as well i think you do get a lot of imposter syndrome in education of people going like what you you want to platform me and the fact is i'm now convinced i've said this to a few people recently like i now have this theory right that no one knows anything right everyone like everyone's just guessing we're all guessing and some of our guesses are better and more evidence informed than others but we're still guessing and once you appreciate that i think you go well, I will then share my, my my guess as I currently think it. And if I change my mind in two years, that's fine. But I think, yeah, uh, helping people have the confidence to platform and express their ideas serves all of us because you never know that kind of ripple effect, I guess, of who's going to be inspired or motivated based on that throwaway line that you didn't even really think about almost. Yeah, on that message then, if there's anybody listening that knows a colleague or a friend who has something to share but doesn't have the confidence to put them forward, please just just push them into doing this kind of thing. Because I've spoken to so many people who have got ideas about teaching and learning that they 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 don't want to go to the senior leadership in their school and talk about it because they feel like it's not their place or they feel like they're wrong. And if we're not doing those things, that's how we're, we're not going to develop any further. So the more people can be pushed to do that kind of thing, I think the, the better. Here, here, what a lovely sentiment. <laughs> well, with that, we'll, we'll wrap up and go on to the final round then. 
sign up to receive the From Page to Practice weekly newsletter to read tips and advice from my guests, as well as information on upcoming episodes. Find the link in the show notes for this episode. So this final round, I finally landed on the CPD library round as a name. Um, But that library can have in it articles, it can have books, it can have podcasts, it could have a person which doesn't really count as a library but you know what I mean um so I've got some categories and I'd like you just to tell me the the relevant thing for that category so the first one is first got you into evidence-informed practice uh so the first book that ever got me into evidence-informed practice is a book called uh, learned optimism uh it's by a psychologist a very famous psychologist called Martin Seligman he's often referred to as like you know, the godfather of like positive psychology. And it was the first psych book that I read that wasn't part of my university course. It was like my first optional uh, book. And it just explained research really clearly about why some people respond differently to setbacks and how we attribute success and failure. And it was the first time I actually thought, oh my God, you can actually help develop these skills and there's a research base behind it. So yeah, learned optimism, I'd uh, strongly recommend to everyone. And I think that's a great one because that's the type of thing that most of the teachers that have been on won't have said and actually sounds fascinating from from their point of view. So uh, next one, resonated with you the most? Uh, I'd say the book that probably resonated with me the most, I'm guessing other people might have said this one, I, I think Teach Like a Champion by Doug Lamar. <laughs> yep. uh, because when I used to teach in a college, I just felt I was guessing the whole time and if it, I just try and figure stuff out by trial and error, whereas having someone be able to kind of segment and codify strategies just to give you options, it just felt that like, I felt that when I was here, I was like, I felt like I'd, he'd heard that that's the book I needed to be reading. Um, so yeah, certainly teach like a champion, I think for me. And next up is challenged your views. So uh, in terms of challenging my views, this isn't a book, it's a research paper. Um by uh, a researcher done about best part of a decade ago uh, by a researcher called Dunlosky. Uh, it's the seminal paper that looked at different learning strategies and it found that some are more effective than others um, or some, I should say, have high utility than others. And I think it changed my views because I look back at how I used to study and my work ethic was decent, but I would, I would just write notes over and over and over again. That's kind of all I did is write notes to like ingrain it somehow into my memory. Whereas reading the research around how highlighting and rereading probably aren't very effective and things like retrieval and spacing are, um, it was a bit of a light bulb moment for me because it challenged my previously held views about how, how learning happens. Oh, that's a great one. I've got the uh, the author of the inaction version um, of, of that paper coming on in, in a bit. I think it might be a while till I'm speaking to him, but I'm speaking to him at some point. So can I say, I think that book is amazing. Uh, I think the description of interleaving specifically in that book is the clearest and cleanest explanation of what is quite a complex strategy I've ever read. And I've seen him present one or two times. Amazing guest to have. I think your listeners will be in for an absolute treat when, uh, when he comes on. Oh, what a great endorsement of both the book and a forthcoming episode. Thanks. <laughs> no worries. Um, where's the next one? Uh, had the biggest impact on practice? So it's a right cop-out and you might roll your eyes at me. Uh, but gem- generally, uh, writing, our book, The Science of Learning, uh, had 
I think once you write a book, everyone assumes you're an expert if you've written a book. Like you must be an expert in that thing because some publisher has given you a deal. Whereas what I actually found is the actual act of writing it helped clarify my mind what I actually thought and didn't think because you have to be quite concise with your words. And I think in terms of knowledge of research, because I had to read all these studies and condense them and uh, explain them and organise my thoughts on them, that has now shaped my practice tremendously. Absolutely no eye rolling here at all. I totally what you mean. It's, it's in the same but on a different scale to what we're saying about podcasts. You know, you right, get yeah, a lot from it in the process of doing it. 100%. Uh, so should be required reading for either a trainee teacher or an early career teacher? Am I allowed to be cheeky and have two here? Is that is that within the rules? of? The Go for it. Some right? people have really broken the rules and done about three, so I'll take it. <laughs> Amazing. I, I can do three if you want me to be a rule breaker. That's uh... <laughs> so, so the first book I have to say is, um, I referred to her earlier, Jade Pierce's book, What Every Teacher Needs to Know, I think is a great starting point because it's clear, it covers a broad range uh, and, you know, knowing where to start with the research and starting with those seminal papers, uh, I, I think is a brilliant one for, for all teachers, but especially new teachers uh, to know. Mm-hmm. Um, the second one I have to say is our book, Teaching Learning Illuminated. I think it, sh- I think it should be mandatory reading because it, people have to read a lot at the start of their career and hopefully having something light uh, can offer a nice contrast. So yeah, I have to say Teaching Learning Illuminated on that one. I'll allow that. I think that's an absolutely fine thing to say. Um, So Inspired You is the next one. So uh, in terms of a book that's inspired me, I was thinking back to my early career when I was teaching and the book that really made me think, could I become good at this? And is this like the right area to work in? Was uh, a book called An Ethic of Excellence by Ron Berger. Uh, I recognise the title. uh, It's brilliant because he... He basically challenges you to think about what is possible in terms of what, how much you can help your students and the level of potential that every student has. And our job is lucky as an educator to be able to help facilitate that. And in terms of making me think, yeah, this is actually a real profession where you get to do good in the world and make lasting impact and really inspiring, uh, I'd have to say his book, An Ethic of Excellence. Great. There's just a few more left. Um, the next one is your most recent read. So my most recent read was, um, it's a book that hasn't come out yet, but I was lucky enough to get a peek of the uh, manuscript in advance. Uh, it's a book by a um, a brilliant educator called Sarah Cottingham, uh, and the book's called Meaningful Learning. Uh, and what I think is brilliant about her book, Meaningful Learning, is I actually think anyone who's interested in cold science and the curriculum will never view it the same way after reading her book. Because we're very big, I think, and I talk about myself in this included, of one of the limitations sometimes of cognitive science is we have these pockets of knowledge and we retrieve these facts or ideas, whereas her book looks on a different research theory and looks at how do we create bodies of knowledge so that we have meaningful, deep learning. Uh, and not only does it cover the research, it covers a number of practical strategies. And I'm just convinced it should, be, it, it should be and will be mandatory reading for all those who are really interested in this area. Well, that's fantastic. I'm pretty sure I've read some of her blogs in the past, so I'm not surprised at all that she's written a book now as well. Yeah, it's really good. 
Um, what is next on the to be read pile? So next on the to be read pile, uh, it's next because it's not out yet, but I'm very much looking forward to it. Mm-hmm. Um, it's by a uh, author called Emma Turner, uh, and the oh, book's yeah. called. Uh, okay, so that's good. You're familiar, with that. and the book's called Initium. <laughs> um, and what I'm excited about her book is a lot of cognitive science typically looks at secondary school. Um, I think a lot of it should be applied to primary because limitations to working memory are even more pronounced at a younger age and retrieval has been shown to be beneficial regardless of age. So I, I, I think it's a misconception that it's only for secondary. But that being said, I don't think there are enough primary focused books um, on cognitive science. Often they need some adapt- adaption and I think her book hopefully is going to answer a lot of questions in that space. So I'm looking forward to reading that. <laughs> and the last one now, the last one you m- might be that you think it does now exist because you've written it, but um, the doesn't exist but should category has been taken in different ways by different people, either by saying something that they're really interested in a particular area and they can't find one book that brings it all together or they think, oh, when I first started teaching, this particular thing would have been really useful, so I think there should be a book around on this. Uh, but like I said, if you, if you wish to say Teaching and Learning Illuminated because actually you know what, it didn't exist and you think it should, you're allowed to, I'll allow it. <laughs> uh, I'm not going to say Teaching and Learning Illuminated because uh, I figured that would be pushing my luck on this podcast having name-dropped it about 20 times. Uh, this was the hardest question because... You know, I'm currently working on some ideas on future books that really kind of challenged my thinking. Uh, this wasn't one of them, but I would love someone to do this. I would love to see a pocket book, so a small book, um, of 100 researchers explaining their main finding in 100 words each. Uh, so you have to be really concise and you can't be too can't be too nuanced in 100 words but what is the headline finding 100 researchers each doing 100 words i think that would just be an awesome one hour read for people i think that would be brilliant love it that is the most specific idea anyone's come up with so far and i love it i i I feel like i was having to pitch the idea to you as if you're just kind of like a like like a dragon's den like you go yeah it's good um I should change it to that. I like that. (laughs) (laughs) Amazing. Glad to be of service. Yeah. So that brings our conversation to a bit of a close. So is there anything you'd like to say and where can people follow if they want to on, I'm guessing Twitter's the best platform? Yeah. um, Well, I guess just thank you for having me on, uh, giving us this this platform to kind of share our ideas. I just generally really appreciate it. Uh, If people want to know more um, and, look at what cpd looks like in their schools um our website innerdrive.co.uk is the best place to really check that out um for those who are looking to look at programs of cpd our teacher cpd academy um hopefully is uh further in tune with this conversation and the sort of style that hopefully can can really help um but would also be keen to point out there's a whole ton of free stuff on the site as well for those looking for um to follow us on twitter uh our company twitter is inner underscore drive um my personal one is bradley k bush um so yeah uh, if anyone has any questions we could probably talk about this stuff all day every day so dms are always open if anyone wants to get in touch 
That is exactly the the sentiment with every conversation I've had so far. Like we could continue talking about this for hours, <laughs> but we're coming to forty five minutes, and we'll wrap it up there. So thank you so much for coming on. I really appreciate it. When I chanced the uh, the email of, did you fancy it? So uh, yeah, it's been great talking to you. Ah, oh, thank you again, and uh, keep up the great podding work. Are you interested in evidence informed practice? Do you have a favourite edgy book? Have an idea of what great CPD is and should be? Or to just generally have a chat about education? Please sign up to join me for a conversation. I rely on volunteers from all contexts and levels of experience. Visit learninglinguist.co.uk forward slash page practice podcast for the sign up form. I hope you enjoyed my conversation with Bradley. I love the idea of turning that last CPD round question into a pitch. (laughs) After the recording, he also left me a question for a future guest. Feels very diary of a CEO podcast, if you ask me. (laughs) Next, I'll be speaking to Rachel Ball and Alex Fairlamb, who will be talking about their book for history teachers. If you want to see the podcast continuing beyond around October half term time, then I'll definitely need more volunteers signing up for a chat. So please do consider it. You've been listening to From Page to Practice. Don't forget to join in the conversation using hashtag page practice podcast. Thanks go to Kevin McLeod of Incomtech.com for use of the tracks Cheery Monday and Fuzzball Parade, which are licensed under Creative Commons.